Beware the Ides of March, Shakespeare tells us. And not just because it's the day that Julius Caesar was assassinated. But today, March 15th, is also the anniversary of the death in the darkest alternate timeline of the great Marty McFly's father, George McFly, who was shot in the back by Biff Tannen. And here to discuss things both Shakespearean and Back to the Futurian is the man who played George McFly in Back to the Future 2, Jeffrey Weissman. Jeffrey, what have I gotten wrong? Austin, I'm so happy you, you called me on to this because, you know, I am an expert on this uh, topic. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, whatever it is, wherever you are. I'm Austin Titchener, one-third of the Reduced Shakespeare Company, and you're listening to this week's Reduced Shakespeare Company podcast, now in its 15th year, number 745, Remembering George McFly. Tragic death happened on March 15th, and I'm not talking about Julius Caesar. March 15th is the day, according to one unofficial, non-canonical timeline, that Marty McFly's father, George, was killed by Biff Tannen. George McFly was played by Crispin Glover in the first Back to the Future movie, and by my guest Jeffrey Weissman in Back to the Futures 2 and 3. And as both a huge fan and an almost kind of colleague, I was thrilled when Jeffrey was willing to jump on Zoom today and tell me the story of his Back to the Future journey, both the good and the bad. And we were able to talk also about some of his other performance work and our mutual Shakespeare work. Jeffrey began our conversation by talking about the deep dive into George's backstory that he continues even today. I've been reading uh, uh, the, the, the novel, A Match Made in Space, and I'm looking for, uh, you know, hints whether or not, uh, you know, George was prophetic. You know, he, I think, was ultimately unhappy in his... Uh, you know, his nerdiness and his geekiness and his uh, being uh, so malaligned with his uh, community uh, that he was, you know, obsessed with getting to another planet, with getting out into space where life could be so much richer for him and, and he could finally find the, the love. Uh, and all that kind of got derailed when uh, this uh, kid out of nowhere, you know, talked him into uh, getting together with Lorraine Baines and... Uh, that derailed his writing career for years. And then finally he finished the novel because, you know, he, he, uh, all the stars aligned and I don't know, I'm so confused. Well, I, 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 as are we all, I, I, I mean, um, not, I mean, what adds to the tragedy is that his writing career was cut short on the same day that he was killed. He was on his way to accept an, an award for his writing. On also on March 15th. I mean, the tragedy just multiplies. I know you've had to answer this question a lot, but can you give me the reduced version of how you got cast as George McFly? Oh my God, I can do it as an interpretive dance, uh, but that, <laughs> it's a podcast, so I don't know if everyone would get it. Uh, no, it, uh, it was kind of a bizarre turn of events. It, it, it really was not a certain thing when I got the first call. 
I, I, as you know, I was playing Stan Laurel at uh, Universal Studios on the tour and uh, a uh, lookalike agent who is a dear friend uh, who you may know, uh, Jeffrey Breyer, previously Jeffrey Gluckson of Cock and Feathers from the Renaissance Fairs. Oh, wow. Uh, he had this lookalike agency, called me up in, in my break room one day and says, do you know who uh, Chris McGlover is? I was like, yeah, I, I did a film with him at AFI the year before he got the first Back to the Future movie. Uh, what's going on? And he goes, well, the uh, production is looking for a stand-in photo double for him for a film. And I was like, oh, the, the sequel to Back to the Future? He goes, I, I'm not at liberty to say. I was like, ah, come on. Everyone knows it's in pre-production. Uh, get me in there. I need the work. You know, I need to get my medical. My ex-wife was having our second kid. And... Uh, so I went in and met with the assistant directors. I, I had already co-starred in a film with Clint Eastwood and John Lithgow and uh, appeared in films with Michael Keaton and uh, all sorts of different television roles and such. And so the ADs had confidence that I had confidence <laughs> and uh, spoke with Zemeckis and uh, uh, with me apparently, about me rather. And uh, then I got a call to go to casting and read for uh, the casting directors and did the scene where George and Marty are hanging the laundry in the backyard. And I was like, why am I, for a photo double, why am I having to audition? You know, usually you just get called in on those things. So then they started sending me to makeup fittings for mm. prosthetics and body cast. And I was like, what is going on here? Oh, they want to screen test you to make sure the makeup works. So in my mind, I figured they were going to need George in multiple places at the same time. Right. And uh, thus I had a screen test in the young George makeup based on Crispin's uh, uh, life mask. And uh, I remember during that test, uh, no, this isn't the reduced version of this, is it? <laughs> uh, uh, Dick Tracy was shooting next door in the studio next door. And uh, there was, uh, was it Dustin Hoffman as prune face and, uh, Flat top, uh, William Forsyth was there. They were looking at me in this makeup going, what the, who are you supposed to? And I was like, look at that, man. You guys look amazing. What are you supposed to? Anyway, uh, <laughs> Zemeckis, during my test, I remember saying to Dean Cundy, the cinematographer, uh, what do you think, Dean? And Dean says, I think we got Crispin without the trouble. At which point, a, kind of a light went on. I was like, what do you mean? And uh, it was kind of in the 11th hour of... You know, just they were already shooting, was my understanding, and I I got a call from my agent saying they they want you as George, and I was like, what? Hold out for good money, which they didn't, but that's another story. <laughs> um, so that's basically how it happened, and then going on set, the first day uh, recreating the Enchantment Under the Sea dance, uh, and then out in the lobby, uh, the lobby, the parking lot, knocking Biff out. I mm -hmm. uh, I I was it was rather uncomfortable because people would refer to me as Crispin, wow. Or uh, Michael's first uh, words were, and I I hadn't really met Michael J. Fox yet, and he saw me and said, "Oh man, Crispin ain't gonna like this." I was like, "Oh shit, what yeah. have I gotten into?" Um, and you know, as as the story goes, uh, they didn't tell me they didn't have Crispin's permission to use his likeness. Uh, I was friends with Crispin already. So I called him up, you know, first of all, to see if he would say a good word for me because I needed the work to be his photo double. And he didn't really return my call until he was ready to sue after part three came out. 
Wow. And I was like, hey, Crispin, what the? And he says, you know, and, and he cried his, his case, how they mistreated him, he felt, on the first film and how they reused his footage and used his likeness. And I said, you know, they kind of, that, that wasn't right. And he used my stories and so on and so forth to get his out of court settlement for three quarters of a million dollars. And there lays the tale. They, they actually tried to keep me quiet. I couldn't oh. get photos of my work. I couldn't, uh, I had mysteriously uh, promotional gigs for Universal Florida that I was doing the uh, grand opening uh, promotions for. Uh, that whole tour got plugged when I asked for my Back to the Future footage so I can also cross promote. So a lot of uh, shifty shit was going down. Mm. And I've learned eventually that uh, because of my talking with Crispin during the, the case, uh, I had been blacklisted on the Universal lot. So it was like, oh boy, tailspin for the career. So it was, it was pretty rough and uh, didn't work so much. So I got out of Hollywood and um, about 90, the late 1990s, the fans and DeLorean owners discovered me and started bringing me into their realms of, of fan cons and and podcasts. <laughs> well, and am I right in thinking that um, a detente, has, a certain closure has happened with your experience because you are a great uh, a, a proselytizer and- uh, um, I, I, I prefer raconteur. But raconteur. No, I, I, uh, I've had to go through a lot of crap. Unfortunately, uh, the tailspin caused severe depression, mm. uh, uh, avoidance behavior. I it ended my first marriage. Uh, there was, there was some trouble. Um, and I, you know, have over the years dealt with it. Although, you know, in recent years, I've found a lot of the parties that were part of this whole rigmarole uh, have not been a, necessarily apologetic. Crispin has never mentioned my name or thanked me for it. Bob Gale has gaslit me and in interviews and such. I mean, if he heard this, he would come up and say, no, that's not true. You know, and I'm like, I got my own my truth here. I, I'm not sure I have a, another story to tell. Hi. I'm Rob Miles, actor, writer, director, creator of the Shakespeare Deck, and co-creator of the show Must Go Online, and you're listening to the Reduced Shakespeare Company podcast. Where can you RSC the RSC? Right now, sadly, still a year later, the only place to see the remote Shakespeare Company is online. We've created a page at our website, ReducedShakespeare.com, and a playlist on our YouTube page, where right this second, you can watch us perform many of our epic abridgments from the comfort of your own shelter. You can also grab your own copy of Pop-Up Shakespeare, written by me and Reed Martin, and beautifully illustrated by Jenny Mazels. It's on sale worldwide, and you can find links to independent bookstores in the U.S. and the U.K. on our website. And now back to my conversation with Jeffrey Weissman, star of stage, screen, renaissance fairs, and online Shakespeare. We were talking earlier about how one needs to diversify in this business to survive. And, um, uh, 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 and I, and so, and recently, I mean, this didn't pay either of us. We, but we both uh, performed with the show Must Go Online last year. I'm sorry, you didn't get paid. Wait, what? Oh no! <laughs> oh no! Um, but your um, your Toby Belch uh, in Twelfth Night was a masterpiece of subtlety and nuance. Hang on, I mean the exact opposite of that. 
which I love because if you're going to do Toby Belch, just do it. It was uh, lovely. <laughs> yeah, I think I worked a Belch in there. I think I burped once. Uh, the, it was such a thrill for me because I, I remember in, uh, gosh, the mid 80s or so, uh, understudying Andrew Aguecheek up at Theatricum Botanicum. Mm-hmm. and never got to go on as Agu uh, Cheek. And then uh, more recently for Main Stage West that I think your friend Dan Saski even has worked with, um, I got to play uh, Feste, or Feste. Oh. And, uh, and when they had casting coming up, I said, you know, I've understudied Agu Cheek. I'd love to finally play that role or could do Feste again or something. And they, they said, well, you know, we see you as... So Toby Belch, I was like, huh? Wow. And I, I, in high school, I actually played John Falstaff, Sir John, and uh, could stuff a pillow in. I figured, but they didn't see him as fat. They said, just, you know, I uh, loved it. I, all I can say is that it was a thrill for me to, first of all, uh, I worked originally with them when they did their Shakespearean version of Back to the Future. Right. Uh, Ian Drescher had written, adapted it, and he was a friend on Facebook. I don't know why we're not friends anymore. Something happened. Um, maybe he didn't like what I did. And I wrote <laughs> when he he said, you know, they're casting. I can't believe they're going to do my version of Back to the Future. And I said, are they still casting? I sent him a note. And he goes, I don't know. Here's the casting director's email. So I wrote her and told her what I had done as George in part two and three. And uh, they were like, what part would you like to play? <laughs> and I was like, <laughs> Could I play Doc Brown? And uh, they said, yes, please. And my wife became my camera person. You know, when I'm climbing the the clock tower, she's turning my computer on its side so I can climb on the ground and make it look like I'm climbing the clock tower. And she was my set decorator, my uh, wardrobe person. Uh, it It was really great to have yeah, in quarantine, a uh, uh, an associate uh, backbone as for, for my performance, uh, and and I even did the slide for life, you know, uh, down the wire here in my living room, just attached from there and flew down to here on a on a coat hanger. Oh, fantastic! Um, so you can see that online as well as that Twelfth Night. She helped me in Twelfth Night uh, with just all the same things I'm talking about for Back to the Future Shakespeare version, and uh, it was really really delightful because she has this green thumb. And so I took a bunch of the plants that we have that so I could hide behind uh, in, you know, in the uh, uh, Malvolio in the gardens speech and all that. And using the same thought, the actors in Australia and the Caribbean and in England uh, in the same scene all found plants in their house to hide behind as well. We, you know, finding the commonality and learning how to pass uh, props through Zoom uh, and and combat and 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 love making through Zoom, you know, it, <laughs> it, it really was a, an enriching experience. And that, for me, I, I look back at my career and I always think how obsessed I was. Like on Twilight Zone movie, I was with uh, Garrett Brown and his Steadicam, or uh, because I just needed to get on a big budget feature set i uh enlisted to be background on chris columbus's rent and and was fascinated by this prototype of this cam on nine different 
gyros that could shoot between a dancer's leg, pull up and pull up and go over and then go over into the next room all in one shot. Uh, sort of seamlessly, it was a $6 million prototype or something. I found that that's part of the fun for me is seeing these wonderful technicians behind the camera as well as trying to perfect the relationship with the camera in front. So it's, uh, it's a great love of mine. And it was horribly heartbreaking to sort of have the, the career nipped in the bud by the Back to the Future debacle. Yeah, that's. I mean, it's fun, it's fun to talk to you about all of this because your enthusiasm, your enthusiasm for all of the aspects of you know uh, theatrical and filmic storytelling uh, is infectious. And and in fact, it's the way you have to be to survive in this business. You've got to have all the skills in your pocket, you know. Well, hopefully, you diversify out of just being an actor and into creating your own product. And, and for that, you might want to become a director and or producer, writer, all those different things. And, and I have throughout my 48 years now. Um, <clears throat> uh, and, and, you know, this being the reduced Shakespeare podcast, I have to mention that, you know, Dan Singer Rover and uh, Jess and Adam, uh, we're friends from Renaissance fairs back in the seventies, yeah, the late seventies, early eighties, and I kind of uh, crossed out. I started not doing fair in about eighty-two when RSC's star was rising. That's why I've always felt like you and I are sort of old friends and colleagues, even though we've never actually worked together or even I think met. So this is our first time meeting, yes. Yeah. So um it's it's fabulous and fantastic to talk to you now about all of this. That's it for this week's Reduced Shakespeare Company podcast. Send us your alternate timelines via email to feedback at reducedshakespeare.com. You can also find us and interact with other fans on our dedicated podcast page on Facebook at RSE Podcast, on Instagram at Reduced Shakespeare Company, or on my preferred platform on Twitter at Reduced. You can also follow me on Twitter at Austin Titchener, and you can follow Jeffrey on Twitter too at Jeff Weissman. That's Jeff with a J and one F, Weissman. Thanks, as always, to Flux Capacitor Matthew Croak, Web Services by Ginger Power Limited, Music by John Weber and Garage Band. Our random fan shout-out this week goes to Stefan Ragnazand. I apologize if I've said that badly. No reason. It's just random. Special thanks to Rob Miles, whose The Show Must Go Online project premiered a year ago this week and was the first out of the gate with so-called Pandemic Shakespeare. The Show Must Go Online productions are an invaluable archive of staged Zoom Shakespeare and can all be found forever and ever amen on YouTube. Just go to YouTube and search The Show Must Go Online. And finally, thanks very much to you for listening. Please stay safe, stay home, and keep your masks on. I'm Austin Titchener, 745-2235ths of the Reduced Shakespeare Company. Thank you for sharing your adventures and misadventures. I really do appreciate it. We'll see you soon. Well, yeah, I'll see you in the future. This podcast is a production of the Reduce Shakespeare Company. Reducing expectations since 1981. Go to ReduceShakespeare.com for performance dates, actor bios, email newsletters, and so much less.